This is a Federal News Network podcast. The United States will likely be involved in Iraq for some time, for a long time. It still has contracting going on via the State Department. Recently, State's Office of Inspector General looked at whether contracting activity was properly staffed to ensure oversight. For more, we turn to the Division Director for the Middle East Region Office for Audits in the OIG, Mike Veneman. Mr. Veneman, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. And in Iraq, then, of course, the military is gone, so it's pretty much State Department is the United States in Iraq. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. We still have a large presence there, and and we have to execute our mission. And what are the scope of contracting that goes on there? Is it all related pretty much to maintenance of the mission? That's the majority of the contracting things. I would consider life support services, operations and maintenance, medical services, things like that to execute the mission, support the staff. All right. And a few years ago, you looked at the contracting activity itself and found that certain required staff members that accompany a contracting officer, particularly the technical person, they used to call it the COTR, now it's the contracting officer's representative, and a technical evaluator were not part of a major contract. Tell us more what you found then, and then we'll fast forward to what you found at the relook. Sure. So over the past five years, what we found is that the contracts there, they have to have these cores assigned to them, which require a certain level of expertise that's determined by OMB, and that's called a, a fact core certification. And so that is a combination of education and experience. And when you have a larger contract, it requires a more extensive type oversight. So you need the most experienced people. And what we found is that within Iraq, it's hard to staff those positions with the most qualified people to be the eyes and ears for the contracting officer. Is there any particular thing that they're buying that particularly requires the COR, the core? All of those life support services, we're talking about billions of dollars of contracts. And these contracts, they do require somebody to have some technical expertise and subject matter expertise within life support services and operations and maintenance medical services. Without that, you have a potential vulnerability. Life support services means more than just medical. What is it they're actually looking at? So life support services could be anything from food to fuel. We're talking about waste services, water, et cetera. So anything that would support all of the foreign service officers to execute the mission. And so the acquisitions are principally from local contractors in Iraq then? Well, the contractors are actually based out of the U.S., and then they will subcontract to local vendors as necessary. It can be a combination of things. But since it is Iraq, it's different from being in the United States. So it's crucial to look at what you're actually getting delivered in terms of quality levels, as well as proper quantities and delivery and all that kind of stuff. But basically, you want to make sure it's unadulterated, I would say. Absolutely. So you need to have people on the grounds. And that means that we have people in Iraq who need to be able to accept and inspect the services and the goods that they're receiving. And if you don't have that subject matter expertise and and know what it is that you're looking at, you may miss some things. And over the years, we have definitely found some vulnerabilities. I can tell you since 2016, OIG has reported $109 million in question costs on those contracts in Iraq. And I imagine the COR has to maybe get out of the embassy walls and maybe visit certain subcontractors and so forth. And that takes various skills, I would imagine. 
It would. I will say that in Baghdad, for example, we are lucky where they don't have to get outside the embassy walls because the deliveries will take place at the embassy. So they have a good chance to perform oversight alongside the contractors. All right. We're speaking with Mike Veneman. He's division director for the Middle East Region Office for audits in the office of the inspector general at the State Department. And so a couple of years ago, you recommended they go ahead and find these qualified people to go along with the contracting officer. And now you've looked recently. And what did you find? Did they follow those earlier recommendations? So in the earlier project, we had made 13 recommendations, and they have taken some steps, the department has. There are some additional steps that they need to take to make sure that they have a robust core workforce, uh, contract oversight representative workforce. You know, just really looking at what we have, in other words, the acquisition workforce, and whether we could take additional steps to boost that core workforce. Are these workforce billets funded by State Department? They are funded by uh, State Department. Right now, they are comprised of foreign service officers who typically do the oversight. And when there is a challenge, the State Department could actually assign civil service personnel under the hard-to-fill program, or they could actually reach out and hire personal services contractors, PSCs. It sounds like a tall order, though. If you have to be a foreign service officer, that's a whole set of qualifications and history and and training. And then if you also have to be an OMB level certified COR, that's a whole different set of training and background. So I imagine those are difficult individuals to find. Sure. And I think that's the challenge is that to perform contract oversight in Iraq, you're looking at foreign service officers who's primary responsibility are are diplomatic type functions. And so when we're looking at the vulnerability here, it really comes down to this is an ancillary duty for those foreign service officers. They have other issues that they need to take care of as well. And so trying to come up with a robust system of government technical monitors and cores that could oversee these programs effectively would benefit the department. That's kind of an interesting twist that you mention here, too, that in the overseas situation, being a contracting officer's representative can also have elements of diplomacy in it. It could. With the contracts that we looked at, we did have foreign service officers that their primary responsibility, which is unique, was to be the core. Uh, Typically, they would have primarily diplomatic functions. In this case, the diplomatic functions are supposed to be more ancillary, but that's the difficult thing. The foreign service officers are trained to be diplomats, and now you're asking them to do something totally different than what they're accustomed to. And that's one of the challenges, finding somebody who has not only that core expertise, the experience in education, but also has the subject matter expertise in the contract that they're overseeing. Sure. And when I said diplomacy, I guess what I meant was it's almost like commercial diplomacy because you are dealing with companies doing business with the United States in Iraq. And there's all sorts of cultural issues, I imagine, that surround that different than if XYZ oil company is delivering to your house to fill your tank with oil from the United States. Absolutely. And when they are conducting this diplomacy with the uh, contractors, they are primarily working with somebody that's U.S.-based, and then they drive out the message. It seems to work pretty well. I've seen how they're doing it on the ground. It's just a matter of getting the most experienced people there. 
All right, so state still has to get some of those people in. What are briefly the most recent recommendations, and does state agree with you? Sure. One of the things that we've asked them to do is to really assess the contracts that are out there and develop a list of qualifications in subject matter that they would like to see for their foreign service officers that are assigned to oversee the contracts. And they are conducting a study according to their response, and and we expect to hopefully resolve that issue. We also ask that the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs and the Office of the Procurement Executive to coordinate on was a strategic human capital plan with the focus of addressing core workforce shortfalls. They're in the process of coordinating that, and there are a lot of things for them to consider to make sure that they have the robust workforce. And we look forward to working with the department to clear that. Mike Veneman is Division Director for the Middle East Region Office for Audits in the Office of the Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness Uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. (laughs) Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.